from Hamster Wheel Publishing. This is Freewheeling. The show that answers your questions about veterinary business and leadership. With me, Dr. Dave Nichol. Hi, I am Dr. Dave Nichol and welcome to Freewheeling, the veterinary business Q&A show where you chuck in your questions to me and I give you an answer as I see fit, which kind of makes this a bit of a monologue, doesn't it? Um, but it's good stuff. It seems to be working and you guys seem to be enjoying it. So on today's question, it comes from Pike Cole via Facebook. Good question, Pike, I like this one. It's how do you ensure graduates get the most amount of support without encouraging codependency? Love this question. All right, so I'm gonna go straight to my Blunt Deception podcast. And if you guys are not following Blunt Deception, then you should. Um, it's a longer form podcast where I interview rock stars from the world of veterinary medicine or from parallel industries I think we can learn something from. And in episode 15, I speak to the Royal Air Force's um, top pilot trainer. Um, so this guy's been training the frontline troops for the Royal Air Force here in the UK for the last decade. <coughs> Edit that out. His name is Tim Davis, and that means he's trained over 400 pilots. And one of the things in this environment that you will immediately appreciate is there is a very, very narrow margin for error. It's a high pace, high intensity, high stakes, um, very, very fast environment where things are changing completely and there's lots of things that are out with the control of the pilot, like the weather, like what's the enemy doing, like what your buddies on your team doing? What's the terrain doing? What about civilians flying around? So many things that, that, that can change, adapt and go wrong in that very volatile um, and changing and, and unpredictable environment. So if they can manage it and they can train pilots to a very, very high standard, then I figured there'd be quite a lot we could learn from that. So listening to that podcast, Tim drops bomb, no pun intended, bomb after bomb after bomb of really interesting, insightful stuff. Um, so, he's a phrase in there, and he, he uses the phrase comfort, stretch, and panic. And they're the three phases that you can, that, 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 that you, you can be in, in a learning environment, okay? Um, now, comfort, there's no learning happening there. Um, you, you know, everything is, is within your uh, domain, everything's within your skill set. And so, this, this is really autopilot. And being in comfort, in some ways can be dangerous because that's when you can slip into either poor habits um, or you can or, or you just miss things you know because you're on autopilot uh, and so comfort is is probably the point at which is telling you you need to be doing something new or developing or working on something else again okay so that's that's really the comfort side of things stretch is the ideal zone Okay, so you want them, you want our graduates to be stretched because that's the learning zone, okay? They need to be uh, in the zone of probably conscious incompetence at this point or possibly moving into uh, conscious, un uh, conscious competence. So between those two learning zones, they want to be in stretch. Um, and, and as a graduate, you're probably going to be in stretch for most of the three years. Where you get into the burnout zone is when you get into panic. 
And panic is, is probably conscious incompetence, but without the support tools, processes, people in order to think that you're going to do the job safely. So you panic, okay? Um, now, the answer is um, obviously mentoring and training. So when you've got somebody who is consciously incompetent, that is to say they know they suck at something, uh, but they, they don't know how to make it better, then you're definitely in training mode. And so what you have to do is teach them everything. That's where your procedures and processes and your teaching manuals and your training books and videos, that's when you're sitting down in front of a computer talking about what you're going to do. So I, like, I feel like it's very important to have a learning pathway here that maybe says, okay, here's the written procedure for how we do a bitch spay. Now here's a video of how we do a bitch spay. Uh, now here is a cadaver on which we're going to do a bitch spay. And now here's a live animal on which you're going to watch me do a bitch spay. Now here's a live animal where you are going to be scrubbing in with me and handling the tissues and, and getting the feel for those things with me. Now you're going to be doing the bitch spay and I'm going to be standing on, side, on the side riding shotgun answering your questions. And then you're going to be doing the bitch spay and I'm not going to be in the room and you're going to have to figure things out and if you get in trouble then you let me know otherwise you get on and do it okay so uh, you know and finally you, you get to the point where they do that over and over and over again and then you're no longer required so the codependency thing happens partly because they're scared and partly because we have ego okay they're scared so they ask we have ego so we answer because it makes us feel good, it makes us feel smart, it makes us feel powerful as leaders to be able to give all the answers because we're showing off just how damn clever we are. It's the same mistake as we make in the consultation room with clients. Like we love to show how clever we are and with clients we overwhelm them, make them feel stupid. Well with our team we don't do that. What we do is we don't give them the chance to have complete responsibility. We don't give them the chance to engage their grey matter, so of course they don't. And when they don't, then they become dependent on us for further information in the future. More damaging and, and, and perhaps worse in the long term, they're now not experiencing the learning pathway that allows them to tackle similar challenges and problems on their own in future. So what we're teaching them is the way to learn is you don't have to learn. You just ask the boss, the boss gives you the answers and you do it. Okay. Um, and so the, you retain as the boss all the responsibility there, which sucks because now you're doing not just your job, but their job. And if it goes wrong, it was your advice, so it's on you. Far, far better, um, far, far better to then have that learning pathway documented. Make it clear that these are the steps along the way. Chart the progress along the way. So yes, we've read the, the protocol, tick. And now we've watched the video together, tick. Uh, yes, we, you know, maybe the video is just here are the complications of things you shouldn't do and here's the right thing. Now we've done the cadaver, check. Now we've done the watching me do it. So now you've seen how long it took you on the cadaver. I'm going to do it in 20 minutes. So now they know what the gulf in performance that they've got to bridge is and now they're probably freaking out a bit. Like, how am I going to get from doing it in an hour and a half to 20 minutes? Well, you're saying, I'm going to show you how. And I don't expect you to do it right away, but I do expect you to get there. Okay, so there's an expectation. Now they're doing the surgery with you and it takes them, you know, two hours. Um, and, and you say, okay, great. Tomorrow we're gonna do another one. And this time I want you to reflect on what went right, what went wrong, uh, and I'll give you some feedback to improve. And so the next day you're hoping the next time they do it, if it's a similar animal, similar size, similar shape, that they do it in an hour and a half maybe. Okay, 
And then as they see that time coming down, that's going to be encouragement and reward. You never want them to do things that put the animal's life at risk, like, okay, you've got to get to 20 minutes and five procedures, because it's unrealistic. But you also don't want to coddle them to the point where you're in that theater all the time. So eventually, they just have to get in and find their way through the problems themselves. And that's why I think you have to give them the safety net and saying, okay, in the event that the over, you know, that you, you rupture uh, an ovarian stump, what would you do? And as long as they know that put pressure with a swab on the bit that's bleeding, and then once you're not feeling like passing out, try to find it and get a clamp on it. And if after two or three minutes that's not possible, then you're asking for help, okay? So there's clear, you know, have a go, but call me in two points. One, when you think you've got it clamped and you think you've, you've, you've stemmed the tide, give me a shout and let me just check that you did that right because that's an emergency, little minor emergency procedure you just did there and I want to make sure you didn't pick up a ureta or you didn't clamp something you shouldn't have clamped or there's no bile in there because you were in panic mode, okay? Second thing, if you get stuck and you can't find it, where's the point in which you stop so is that the situation is still recoverable, so is there stress on you, but it's not like you're going to you know, lose your license level stress, okay? The truth is the best way to get through moments that are tough is to live through moments that are tough and to try your best, use tools that others have found work before them, but you have to pick up those tools, use those tools, practice with them, fail with them, pick them up again. And as the boss, what we have to be good at doing is allowing people the space and the support to do that and, get, and cutting them some slack when it doesn't go well. Now, at, there may come a point where somebody is just not capable of being weaned from, from the, the mentoring situation or the training situation where they are just too damn scared to get in that exam room or to get in the consult and uh, in, in the operating theater and do the work or you've been trying it and now you're 10 procedures in they're doing it on their own and they're still taking two hours to do something so now you have to have some form of performance conversation where you sit down and go okay what do you think that the parts that you're struggling with here what can i do to help um, but we're going to hold the line and say Two hours isn't an acceptable time for us to do this procedure. So let me, let's talk about what we can do together in order to get you there. What are your responsibilities? What are my responsibilities? How are you gonna make it, okay? And ultimately, if somebody still can't do it after that, then you have to make a choice. Is it that that person really doesn't need to do that? Maybe, they're, maybe they just are not a good surgeon. Maybe they just don't have that confidence. Um, but maybe they're gonna be awesome as a diagnostician or a dentist or, um, or in the exam room. You know, so it doesn't mean that they're going to be a bad person in your team. It just means that particular skill set may be a poor fit. If that's the case and you're willing to proceed with them and, and they've got skills in other areas, by all means, continue. If you're finding that, that you've hired somebody to be a surgeon and, and it's not working out, then my advice is you will have given them a very, very fair go. Um, they will have learned that surgery is not for them. You will have learned that they're not the right person in this position and you both might make a decision to cut at that point. In a way that everyone knows why it's happening, it doesn't mean they're bad at every other part of their job, but it might mean they're just not a good fit for this job and that they, they probably shouldn't apply for surgical training jobs. Um, but that is highly, highly unlikely. 
And it's far more likely with that sort of that sort of skills pathway charted out where you're gradually transitioning from training and and you have all the responsibility to the information and skill transfer happening step by step and eventually you just have to step away and let them get on with it and there isn't any getting away from that you know my surgical um, lessons and my surgical development a lot of it happened out of ours where I did not have skills of support and yeah I goofed some stuff up and I learned from it okay what can I do better I thought I understood that uh, in practice it didn't work out I, I had a plan B so we got through it but it probably wasn't an ideal plan B so I, my thought process was I don't want to be there again and I want to do a better job next time so who do I have to speak to what books do I need to read can I get a cadaver out uh, and kind of go work on it and I think that's what we have to make clear to the next generation is that training time is essential I think we have to be respectful of their time and if they want to go home at seven o'clock and have a life outside of practice I don't have any problem with that like if you're paying them till seven o'clock I don't mind that but you as a practice owner should be you know you should be making space in your day uh, for them to do training you know, so I, I don't see why they shouldn't be doing cadaver training during the day. Um, personally, I did used to come back to the practice last thing at night and, and you know, if there was a, you know, an unidentified animal hit by a car or a fox that got brought in, then I would perform a cruciate operation on that. So as I got a sense of what the tissues felt like and that I kept fresh my skills um, so as that I might have not have done more than, you know, six to 10 cruciates in a year. But I'll, the bigger gaps, and before I ever did another one, I always practiced on a cadaver just to refresh my skills so I could be the, the best surgeon I could for the, the animal on the day. And so I, th I think that we have to make sure that we handhold and then we're setting boundaries. It's just the same with kids. They will take advantage and, and take the easy road if they can, and you have to show them that actually if they want to upskill, then they gotta walk the hard road. Um, and don't be in, don't fall into the trap of thinking all millennials are the same, they're all snowflakes, they're all going to break if we ask them to do anything hard. We just have to meet them in the middle, listen to their concerns, and, but offer them supportive step-by-step um, -step progress through these skills pathways till they get the basic skills um, and everything will be fine, <laughs> okay? So that's what I got for you today. Pike, thank you so much for your question. It's a beauty. Um, please, guys, keep them coming in. Uh, that's it for this episode. So for me, Dr. Dave, be well, be safe, be happy, and I'll see you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to that episode of Freewheeling. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, leave me a rating or review on iTunes. That'd be much appreciated. Now, if you want to have your question answered, hit me up on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. It's at Dr. Dave Nicol. That's D-R-D-A-V-E-N-I-C-O-L. I'll see you in the next episode.